0: So essentially, with one massive operation, we could completely feed those people. If you want something, you actually have to work for it. There are no shortcuts in life. Sometimes you're lucky, but that shouldn't be a lifestyle. Then we would like to shift our complete model into building uh, massive, fully automated farms in impoverished uh, countries and regions and feed the planet. Hi, everyone, and welcome to
1: this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events, Arabian business, and Smartcast. And believe it or not, the founder of Smartcast is our guest today. Now, when I first met him, I thought he was a bit of a nutty professor, if I'm really honest. And I know that he won't mind me saying that. But this guy has got a vision like nobody I've ever met. A Forbes 30 under 30, a real go-getter and a guy that's trying to solve the world's problems with food. Cue the music for David Mizarosh. A special episode from a special sponsor. I'm so delighted that Smartcast decided to sponsor the podcast because David, the founder and CEO, is on a mission. He wants to solve food security for everybody. And I think that's a pretty good mission to get on. Go and follow Smartcast on Instagram at Smartcast Tech. That's S-M-A-R-T-K-A-S Tech. You'll find them there, learn what they're doing, engage with them, ask them questions, because I think this is a really interesting subject that we should all get behind. Arabian Business are the leading source of business news and analysis. Now, you can go to arabianbusiness.com and you can see their content there. But if you want to subscribe, they've got a discount code for us, which is ABEXEC. You'll get 25% off any subscription. Look, trust me, it's worth you going and using this as a source of your business information in the region. So go check it out. I'm really delighted to be working with Najahi the Events. They're our first sponsor on the podcast. They bring people like Tony Robbins, Alicia Keys, Nick Wojcic, you name it, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders into the region so that we can benefit from their learnings and be inspired like we all need to be. So big thanks to Najahi. So David, thanks very much for coming to join us on the show. Thank you for having me and thank you for the kind words. It's a bit unusual having a chat with you because we're kind of friends already, aren't we? So it's going to be... It's probably going to be a little bit deeper and a little bit, I'm probably going to probably stir you up a little bit that's more perfect. than
0: normal, but I hope that's okay with you. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really ready for it. So
1: for the benefit of everyone that's, that's listening and watching to this right now, what, what is smartcast?
0: That's an excellent question. Um, so we are a smart agricultural company. Uh, that means that we create systems that are hermetically closed. Very simple terms. We basically grow fruits and vegetables indoors using robotics, artificial intelligence, and green energy.
1: Okay. Why? Uh,
0: essentially, our slogan or motto is food security as a service. Uh, my personal mission, so not just Marcus's mission, but me as a, as a, as a person, I'd like to essentially abolish uh, world hunger and I'd like to uh, make the access to food and water a basic human right in my lifetime and uh, we use SmartCost as the perfect tool, as the perfect vehicle to achieve that goal. It's
1: a bit of a sweeping claim, isn't it, you know, I want to abolish food security in my lifetime. That's kind of like... I want to save the world, kind of like a big majestic thing to say. Where did that idea come from?
0: It actually started there. So I wanted to save the world. Uh, Approximately eight years ago, when I met Tess, uh, who is our CMO, uh, she asked me, like, what do you want? What do you want to do in this life? What do you want to achieve? Um, You have a bunch of diplomas, you have a nice education, good good network, good connections. Uh, And I told her that, yeah, I'd like to alleviate poverty. But then I realized that's a a bit heavy. That's a a bit of a bigger chunk even than than food and water. And yeah, and over the years, I I got it toned down a little bit. Um, I participated in a lot of technical, technological projects working for the European Union. I gathered a lot of smart people, engineers, uh, a lot of new technologies around me. And that's when I realized that we have already the ability, actually we had it years ago, to to achieve this, to create uh, fully automated, independent systems that grow uh, with robots, with uh, solar, wind power, geothermal—you name it, whatever is present in that given country—and essentially, if you have the right capex, opex, you know, capital expense, operational expense balance, uh, then you can put this anywhere in the world.
1: Okay, so. Describe to me in really dumb terms, because I'm not that intelligent, what is food security? What what does that actually mean? What's the problem that we see on the planet right now? And and, and how is this solving that problem?
0: Sure. So it has a legal term and it also has a more practical term that people actually understand. The legal term is about four pillars. It's access, uh, utility, availability and stability. Uh, the access and availability, I don't think I need to explain it, that's like access to food and the availability of food. But that doesn't just mean caloric intake, that means vitamins, that means enough zinc, enough iron, uh, enough uh, secondary uh, metabolites in your food. And we have less and less of that because of climate change. Essentially the two biggest threats uh, to, cli- uh, sorry, to uh, food security are uh, overpopulation and climate change. Because of overpopulation, there's more and more of us to feed. So I don't think uh, that that needs to be explained too much. Well, no, uh, give me
1: some numbers on this, because I know sure. you might have talked about this a lot. But for everybody that's listening and watching right now, these, these are important numbers. Because that, that is what yeah. struck me, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. So by 2050, according to the UN, we will be well over 10 billion uh, people on this earth. Uh, just that is, is, is insane. But you have to pair that with urbanization. That means that extra people they're not being you know they're not rural people they're not farmers it's not like they will live in villages they they want to come closer and closer to the cities and uh couple that with climate change uh because of the loss of vitamins zinc iron everything that i just said uh it causes an approximate 63 million life year loss per year so what that means essentially the collective lives of every single person on this on this world is, being, is, is shrinking by 63 million years every single year just because of these two factors, overpopulation and, and climate change.
1: That's quite a staggering number. I can't quite fathom that yeah, when I think yeah. about it. 63 million life years. So people move out of the rural areas. They move to the cities so they can find work. The population in those cities then becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and sorting out the issue of feeding all of those people becomes the challenge.
0: Not just that. So it's not just there's not enough uh, food, but the utilization, which is the third pillar, becomes an issue through logistics. Import-export is, is already the heaviest toll uh, on, on the emissions, on the quota that we have before we reach a uh, uh, critical limits. Actually, we are really bordering critical limits. Um, But if you think about the fact that more and more people live more condensed uh, next to each other, uh, then essentially uh, we either have to solve some last mile delivery uh, problems through drones, through uh, automated uh, vehicles, uh, rotating stores or whatever. We are not in that business. Or you have to bring, you know, the mountain to Mohammed. You have to build these uh, farms in urban settings. They're sometimes referred to as urban farms. Uh, now, whether it's a vertical farm or a rooftop greenhouse or whatever, it doesn't always have to be smart cars, but it has to serve that purpose.
1: Okay, so I, I live in Dubai, as you know. Dubai is in the middle of the desert, and most food products are put on refrigerated planes yeah. um, and flown over here. Now, whether that be bananas or whether that be meat, generally that happens. That cost of that transport and the emissions from that transport is a big cost to the climate yep. is that what you're saying
0: yes yes absolutely actually dubai and and all the wealthy uh, gulf uh, city countries suffer from the the, the same london plague uh, london used to be a colonial and trade city it still is uh, so the people who live there are used to having access to everything whether that's in season or not that also goes for fruits for example for strawberries behind you or fresh herbs and, and vegetables uh, behind me uh, um, dubai suffers from the same problem they they want fresh, local, so imported local uh, food at, at, at any given day, 365 days a year. Um, but there's, a, there's another issue that people uh, don't realize. There aren't that many people living in these cities, in these uh, countries. The total uh, Arabian Peninsula has 80, 85, 88 million people living on it. Uh, so essentially with one massive operation, we could completely feed those people. And then you could replace that import, export, and all that heavy toll uh, on, on Mother Nature with just one massive uh, smart farm.
1: So describe to me then how a smart farm works. I mean, you've, you've used some, some terms, robotics and stuff like that. Yeah. G- give, me, give me an understanding. What, what am I looking at? And, I, and I, why don't I explain what I understand so sure. far and you can correct me. So this is what I say to people. Imagine an acre of land. A farmer will plow his field, he'll sow his crop, the crop will grow, the crop will harvest, and then winter will come again and he'll plow and he'll leave ready to sow again for next spring. And that's kind of like how a farm works. So one acre. Imagine if you put a warehouse on that one acre and that warehouse was hermetically sealed and inside that one acre you then put shelving units, okay, that were stacked 10 high. Now you've gone from one acre to 10 acres, And by using smart farming technology, instead of you farming once a year, you farm all year round. How good was that as an explanation? That was amazing. Was it?
0: That was amazing. <laughs> Come on! I, I would even add to that. I think I think your viewers are familiar with the term NFTs. Yep. Now, there is an NFT in my world, but it means something totally different. It means nutrient film technology. Say that again, nutrient film, film technology, technology. Okay. which is NFT. Uh, existed long before your kind of oh, NFTs. <laughs> <ball tokens. Yeah. laughs> but um, essentially, these uh, levels that you're talking about, we refer to them as layers. So such a farm is either a vertical farm or a multilayer. Layer farm, and every single layer, just like you see behind me, sits in this plastic or other uh, uh, material, and that's a nutrient-filled technology essentially uh, rack. Every single rack can have then various uh, fruits and vegetables on it, or multi-layer. Everything that you said is 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 absolutely correct. Uh, small addition to that, um, we usually break down SmartCast into four pillars. Uh, we break it down to the power and light. So essentially, power and then you know power powering the light. Uh, the light is always LED. Uh, wide spectrum. You can control the 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 velocity of it, the the strength, uh, the lumen, the um everything. Don't want to go into and the, and, and the details. And the light
1: is on twenty four hours a day. No,
0: no. Okay. So uh, plants also need to sleep. They have a night cycle, day cycle. Oh. Uh, so you actually control it from a computer. These ones are controlled from my phone. Uh, and then uh, you can put in so-called light recipes. So, um, I don't know if they can see behind me, but some of them have different colors. Okay. So, for example, blue one really pulls it, red one really makes it bloom harder, etc., etc. Okay. Oversimplified, because there are like million variations, and then it's up to the head grower to really carefully concoct together these recipes. Now, these recipes don't just exist for light, they also exist for water. CO2 and the nutrition mix. Of course, there is also airflow and all of that stuff, but you can automate that mostly. Um, What I'm trying to get at is that by careful modification and manipulation of these factors, you can essentially shorten the life cycle of the plants. So it's not only a multi-layer, it's not only several times a year and 365 uh, uh, days a year, so independent from climate change, seasons, wind, rain, etc. but it's also shorter So, for example, if you look at uh, strawberries, uh, the most common variety on fields is the June bearing variety. As the name suggests, uh, you can uh, have it once a year, essentially. Some you can have twice, three times, etc.
1: Just make sure I understand that. So we're growing strawberries in a field. So as a kid, I used to go strawberry picking. Okay, so that was summer months. Mum would send us out there with a basket to go and go crazy for an hour and eat half of it and then put the rest in the basket. Exactly. That's that's a once a year thing for strawberries.
0: Yes. Uh, through uh, crossbreeding and um, some companies through gen- genetic modification, we don't do that, uh, they can achieve several times a year. And there are also so-called ever-bearing varieties where you can have from May to October or yeah, September, October. Now, that's the best-case scenario that you have in a greenhouse or in a field. So already a greenhouse is an outdated piece of technology compared to what we are doing. As opposed to that, we have 1st of January till 31st of December and every single 28 days, you have fresh harvest. And even that harvest, we break down into so-called segmented harvest cycles. So whenever the off-taker, you know, the supermarket, your Marks & Spencer, Carrefour, Aldi, whatever, wants it, we can have it.
1: So you, you you essentially are harvesting 12 times a year strawberries?
0: More than that. We actually harvest 52 times, so every single week. Every si- It's the life cycle of one single strawberry. So So... so- from the plant
1: being planted to the crop being harvested on a strawberry, that's one week or that's one month?
0: No. So it's a bit more complex than that. Stro- try, and, try and keep it simple. Sure, I don't, want, I don't sure. want people to get confused. Strawberries come as a young plant. So they're already like teenagers, one and a half year old, approximately before they start blooming. That's how they arrive to us from a so-called nursery. After that, they start a life cycle every 28, every 3rd let's say every month uh, they bear fruit. But what we do is we have different cells. Imagine like in this warehouse, they start in first week. In this warehouse, they start one week later. So that after a full cycle, every single week we have fresh strawberries. I get it.
1: I get that. But, but essentially, it is a 30-day yes. process. Okay, yes. so 30-day So Typically, if we plant it all at the same time, you've got a crop yeah. coming every 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 month. Okay, and compared to... Uh, normal farming, that would be between May and September, did you say? Yes, in ha- a
0: in the best case scenario. And
1: between May and September, that's, that's one harvest? Yes. Really? Yes. So that's three, nearly four months of one harvest, and you'll be able to harvest every single month?
0: Correct. On multilayers and uh, irrespective of climate conditions okay so you're using
1: a lot more water a lot more pesticide a lot more what are you what are you using a lot more of and all that kind of stuff
0: excellent question so that actually brings us to the second pillar of SmartCast, which is water Uh, we recycle 95 percent of the water that is in the system and then we co-generate through uh, rain and through external atmospheric generation uh, which is basically humidity from the air the missing five, six percent, so we're completely water positive. We're not using any of the groundwater. We are not using any non-renewable sources of water and we use zero pesticide or chemicals. So
1: we have harvest every month, no pesticides, no chemicals, 95% less water. Correct. Okay. And you're using way more electricity.
0: Yes, that's correct.
1: That's generated
0: through uh, natural means, so through renewable uh, sources. Uh, we always look at the profile, geopolitical profile of a certain country, geographic and geopolitical, uh, where there is an abundance of wind. Uh, we go for windmills. When there's an abundance of sun, we go for sun, not rocket science exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are some certain unique scenarios where uh, you can partner up with a gigantic polluter and then use their waste heat or their waste CO2 or their wastewater water clean it, and then essentially power your clean farm and reducing the emission of the polluter.
1: So if I'm a farmer and I've got my 1,000-acre farm and I'm growing my rape and my weeds and I'm growing my strawberries and everything else over there, and I'm, all of that's happening once, tops, twice a year, are you a threat?
0: Absolutely not. So uh, we never grow varieties that are grown by local smallholder farmers. That is one of our core principles we always want to replace the import-export industry. So we are a big threat to multinationals and the import-export industry. I know I I'll be stepping on quite a few feet uh, in the future, uh, but we want to empower local farmers. We encourage them to join forces with us to to enter into joint ventures. We can uh, then give a lot of land back to nature. So instead of this monoculture exploitation, as for example happens in Brazil, in India, in China, a lot of places in the world, which eventually leads to soil erosion. We can talk about that later. Um, we can have a condensed, small area on multi layers serving the same purpose or even better purpose, and then that farmer is not at a threat at all.
1: Okay, so let, let's understand the difference, okay, between your structure and how many acres of land a farmer would be farming. So we'll take strawberries as an example. So we've got your facility. How many acres of land is that an equivalent of?
0: Sure. So over the course of a year. On one hectare, which is 10,000 square meters, you would have a yield of 20 to 40 tons of, let's say, salad uh, or wheat or or whatever. Uh, We can produce uh, approximately 100 tons in one of our cells that you will soon visit downstairs, which is 100 square meters. Just give
1: me those numbers again, because I don't believe I understood that for a second. So
0: on 100 square meters, we can outperform an entire hectare, which is 10,000 square meters. So there's a bit of a cheating there because on the 100 square meters, we're on 10 layers, right? Yeah. So it's 1,000 square meter growing space, but the net surface area is just 100. But let's say on 1,000, we can do double as much as they can do on the 10,000. This is traditional field farming.
1: That's staggering. It is. And so then, then essentially, what could you do with that land?
0: You could give it back to nature. You could revitalize it, you could reforest it, you could give it back to animals, reservation, or simply give it to um, locals to farm variety. So instead of having monoculture on the entire one hectare, you can have a little bit of strawberry, a little bit of herbs, a bit of flowers, a bit of this, a bit of that, which is healthier for the soil as well, and it doesn't lead to soil erosion.
1: I used to live in Brazil. We have the Amazon rainforest, which is spoken about a lot. We also have Indonesia, which seems to have large forests that seem to be cut down a lot for palm oil. Yes. It seems to be... A bigger and bigger problem because it's the, they describe the Amazon rainforest as nature's lungs.
0: Correct. In northeast Brazil, uh, in just one state, uh, actually two, three states together, but mostly in one state, there's 14 million hectares of land lost to various sources of erosion, whether that's through pesticides, air, or, or sun drying, etc. But the soil is so eroded they cannot build on it. They cannot use it for farming. That's land lost forever. That's a small piece of the world that is
1: okay just explain what that means then because i don't understand soil erosion so when soil is eroded but basically the nutrients have all come out of it yeah okay but when i was a kid we were taught that a farmer would farm a field and every so many years he would leave it to something called farrow. yeah which he'd leave it for a year to to get better and get healthy and get get going again yes yes is you saying that that doesn't happen
0: uh, that that works, that's a real thing. It's it's an age-old technique. They've been using it for hundreds of, if not thousands, of years. Uh, sometimes they had two different sections, one is resting, one is working, four different sections, and then you're going in order, you use one for the animals, you're farming, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. They still do that. But if you're greedy and you abuse Mother Earth, that, that soil for prolonged periods of time, plus you use chemicals, which they didn't have back then. Uh, the top layer just gets so damaged that it will never rejuvenate. And this is what's happening, not just in Brazil. I was born in Hungary. Hungary used to have 7 million hectares of arable land a few years ago. Now they're down to five. And the forecast is that in the next 10 years, it will drop below three and a half. So half of the land has to feed the same amount of people within my lifetime, within a decade.
1: So we're not only dealing with the population growing and having to make sure there's enough for this ever-growing population, but we're also dealing with the destruction of, of, the, of the, the land as well. So it's kind of like you're pulling further and further apart and, and causing a bigger and bigger problem.
0: Exactly. It's almost like humans do this on purpose, because uh, the pesticides are also getting less and less efficient. Uh, as I explained to you the other day, pesticides have a certain diminishing return rate. What that means in human language is that you pour a litter of chemicals on soil. Let's say 30, 40 years ago, it used to be a litter of working uh, pesticides. Now it's down to just 94, 95 percent, which means that only 5 percent or even less is efficient. The less is just toxic for the soil, but doesn't do anything. That's
1: so that's that's like me taking medication for a continued period of time and it just becoming less and less effective. on Precisely. My body, yeah, because exactly. my body gets used to it and builds up antibodies. Exactly. OK, okay. understood. Exactly. So we've got a soil problem, got a population problem. We have um, a chemical problem, a climate problem. Um, And all of these issues essentially are partially being faced head-on by you with the technology you're using.
0: Correct. There are also some other smaller problems that are not as huge, but fun fact, birds. They either eat damage or poop on uh, several uh, tons of fruit uh, in a year. That causes an average farm in the Netherlands a quarter million euros of damage. Just birds. And they're not even considered pests. Okay, that's a really good point.
1: Yeah, because the birds come, they're, and they're obviously they eat the seed when it's sowed as well, don't they? Yeah, yeah, Because you all see the farmer once he's, when the, yeah, yeah, I know yeah, exactly what yeah, you mean. Yeah. Okay. And that's not even talking about
0: these. bacteria. But hold on a does that, then, does that
1: then cause a problem for birds? If well, you take that away from them? No,
0: because you give so much more land back. Okay. Which would be their natural habitat, so they don't have to go to an orchard, to, to a, a, a vineyard, food, to yeah. whatever, which is man-made. They can yeah. actually have real forests to, yeah. to eat in.
1: Okay. That's giving me a much better understanding of what you're doing, okay? I feel I feel I feel more comprehensive in my understanding. And I hope everyone listening to this does too. Um, some could describe you as a bit of a mad professor. Some are you. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, it's like some people have kind of like dreams or ambition or um just a way of looking at the world that's different to others. And most people wouldn't go down this path. You know, you take people that are great scientists and, you know, are, are, are great inventors almost, those types of people. Are like, no, that's a problem. I, and I think I can solve it. And everyone says, don't be so ridiculous, you know. Get back to what you're doing. How did this journey start for you? You know, w- w- what were you like as a youngster? You know, were you born into privilege and lots of money, you know, and all that kind of stuff? Or were you just, you know, some regular kid that, that, that was one of those unusual kids in class <laughs> that, that, that looked at things that most
0: of the average kids didn't? So I come from Hungary. I was born on the border between Austria and Hungary, uh, so very close to the Austrian border. Uh, I don't come from a British family at all. Uh, we don't come from poverty, so it's, it would be unfair to say that I, I was uh, raised poor. Uh, but it was totally normal. I, you know, I had I had my bicycles. We built uh, little hideouts in the forest uh, using our hands. I played a ton of uh, video games, watched movies. So everything totally normal. Um, But then I always had this sort of calling. It's because I realized I have certain abilities. I can retain information very well. Uh, I always had an affinity for languages. I speak several languages. So I always felt that, okay, I have some gifts, some skills, talents. I should use them for something. I should use them for for good. Um, I think what helped me a lot in building Smartcast into what it is today is that I am equal parts businessman and how did you call me? The, the mad scientist. Mad professor. The yeah. mad professor, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that actually comes also from my education. So I have both legal and business education and technical and artificial intelligence education. I always refer to SmartCOS as a technology company that works in the food industry and not a food or agri-company that uses technology. Huge difference.
1: Now, there's other companies that are in the same space or in similar space. Um, we don't have to mention what they are, but a lot of people listening will say, I've heard about this kind of stuff before. You know, I, I, you know this guy's come up with something. It's not, it's not unique. It's not, big, you know, the first. It's not invented anything. So what? It exists. There's lots of companies doing it. What's the big deal? What is different about what you do to what everybody else does? Is there anything really different or not?
0: Absolutely. Uh, So, essentially, uh, we discussed the power, the water. One thing we didn't discuss, but we kind of alluded to, is the waste element. So, it's the CO2 emissions, etc. The fourth pillar of smart is what really makes us unique, which is the artificial intelligence, robotization, handling this business as an infrastructure business, data-driven, with yield prediction. So, we try to kind of min-max the business from a power, light, water, every single element, and completely automate it. No human errors, no negligence, no dependence on climate, the whimsical nature of nature. Uh, We simply automate it, control it, uh, put it in a hermetically closed system, and uh, have robots do the job instead. But it's not all. It also is in the business philosophy. All of those companies that you were probably uh, uh, thinking about, they are uh, abusing the rockstar status of ACTAC in the recent years, and are essentially uh, just pumping up the money, you're just collecting tons of funds, um, to make one church to technology, which is an amazing but very, very expensive unit. Um, uh, And uh, it it can never have a return on investment because it was just way too expensive, requires way too many people to run. For example, there is one competitor in the US, not going to name names, uh, but they have similarly sized warehouse as this one here behind us. um, And they employ 60 people. In there, uh, they had two fatal accidents uh, two years ago uh, because of the scissor lifts going up. These are just small pieces of information that, if you think about, like, ah, okay, yeah. So if fifty people work in the same place where SmartGas has zero people working, that's a massive chunk away from the OPEX. Mm-hmm. If you're using renewable energy to uh, power that massive need for you know electricity for the lights again massive chunk away from the opex mm-hmm. if you're recycling the water if you're re-dosing the co2 we didn't discuss about that but we also reuse co2 and microdose it in higher direct concentration you know the costs keep going away keep going away it's, uh, we work with a front loaded higher capex to make sure that the capex the capital expense initial investment covers everything and then within the next 3 to 5 years we pay back the investors and then let it run and exactly because of that, we don't have to be expensive. The fruits and vegetables can be affordable. We can be competitive. We can set the prices at the same level as you find it in your Tesco, Metro, uh, Albert Heijn, et cetera.
1: How many competitors are there? Just to give you, is it two or three? Is it 10? What's out there in this in, in the space? Not quite doing what you're doing, but in that space.
0: When you talk about competitors, uh, there is an important philosophical schism. There are competitors who are technology providers, they're technology vendors, so they exist for the sole purpose of selling these systems. And then there are competitors who are so-called operators, growers, which is basically what SmartCost does, where uh, either they have created the system or they had a bunch of people create a system for them and then they live off of the sales of fruits and vegetables. SmartCost falls neatly somewhere in between where we uh, design, build, own, operate our smart farms. So we're not a technology vendor. Now, with that knowledge, very few competitors but if you broaden the horizon a lot of competitors because then you can consider every single greenhouse owner uh, a competitor we're in the netherlands 12 13 percent of the entire flat surface of the netherlands is built up greenhouses which is ridiculous i don't know if you know this but the netherlands is number two in food export in the world only beaten by the u.s this tiny 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 country country
1: we can drive through in a day
0: basically um There is a big, big, big uh, uh, ethical and moral drive in me and in everybody in in the team to actually provide food security. And sometimes food security and profit, you know, collide. Because if you want profit, you go to London, New York, Singapore, Dubai, all of these countries where you can have, you know, fat prices for your fruits and vegetables. But we already, in the second year of our existence, chose Brazil as one of our crown jewels because there we can, you know, provide real food security uh, protect the rainforest because we also have a deal with the government for every single hectare that we build up. Uh, 200 hectares of rainforest will be protected. And, uh, yeah, we, we want to put our money where our... Uh, so how do you say that? Money where your mouth is. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> so how many, how many countries are you in now?
0: Um, we have four ongoing operations, which is uh, Brazil, England, Netherlands and Hungary. Um, we have uh, five, six upcoming, uh, mostly in uh, Central Eastern Europe, and uh, yeah, Germany, if you still consider Southern Germany, Central, Eastern Europe.
1: Now, as you set the business up, you were in a fundraising stage at the beginning. Now you're in a, in a building phase. Tell, tell me the kind of companies that have partnered with you along the way and how those relationships came about and uh, what, what they see in the, in the future of this business for them.
0: Everybody that we work with, they, they love us. And that's not really to self-promote. It's because of the easy, flexible, dynamic nature that we work with them. Because we really believe that the end result triumphs over everything else. So triumphs over ego, over whatever. I'll just give you a small example. off takers that we work with in uh, England, in London, we don't put our name on the produce. Our main motivation is to replace The fruit import of the UK with locally grown, locally produced strawberries. It's actually strawberries in the UK. Fun fact, 83% of all soft fruits are imported to the UK year round. Uh, They love that because then they are also ready to think a bit more open-minded. You know, they can... Reach deeper into their pockets and also into their networks and connections, and provide help with uh, packaging, with uh, logistics routes, with locations. Uh, I know you don't consider Harlow, London, but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, essentially we managed to find a strategic location that was right next to the off taker, and they just help us with everything. So, is
1: the off taker the supermarket chains?
0: It can be a supermarket, it can be a restaurant, it can be a hotel, it can even be the military.
1: Okay, so there's lots of different access points there. So by not putting your name on the labels, they're essentially able to brand the product themselves? Correct. So it's Marks & Spencer's Strawberries, for for example. example. Yeah. Okay, understood. And so these partners that you've got Look at what you've done. Uh, there's lots of partners when you're in, in, in building a company that are interested in what their ROI is. Yes. Okay, so they're sitting there saying, okay, it's an interesting subject matter. This guy knows what he's talking about. They're making progress. My ROI will be X, Y, or Z. There's other people that are, will get involved in the mission as well. Yes. So what have you learned about the different people that you've, you, you've partnered up with along the way? Can you can you smell out the ones that are just in it for the cash and smell out the ones that are, that are actually, you know, believe in this kind of stuff
0: too? Immediately, immediately. So every single day I think I get between 10 and 50 uh, offers or requests for partnerships and good deals. uh, Can't miss up, you know, deal of a lifetime. Um, The good thing is that from my and my colleagues past work and, and track record, we have access to a lot of governments. So we can actually use embassies, governments, regional and federal to vet the opportunities. And that's what we do. Uh, we double-check it, and we, we usually try to avoid, like, the top level because we don't want to get political. We we try to go local, local. So, for example, if we go to France, we go to, let's say, Toulouse, we talk to the local government and see, okay, what are the opportunities? Then we sift through all the requests and, and offers and everything that we got from, let's say, the south of France. We create a Venn diagram and see what's in the middle, and that, that's a legitimate uh, opportunity.
1: Okay. Now let's talk about other people that are in the... Uh, entrepreneurial space, yeah, young or even older people that want to start their own business, uh, care passionately about a subject matter. Uh, most, most small businesses end up failing. Most startups don't really get off the ground. What lessons have you learned along the way that you can share with our audience today that, that, that really could add some value to how they think about what they do?
0: I think the biggest lesson so- will sound very cliche, but I think a happy ending depends on where you stop the story. And I think uh, a happy ending startup or a happy ending business is also, it, it depends on your sheer will. It's basically on your discipline that when hardships come, and they will come, and, and when, you know, when it rains, it pours, uh, you just keep on pushing. You just drill through, you never stop. Uh, I could have stopped Marcus, already probably 50 times, uh, and not because of a, of a owie boo boo that, uh, you know, I'm tired, I don't want to wake up today, but because of very, very serious uh, issues, which we all managed to deal with, we solved, and we came out stronger. So that's my biggest advice. Never back down, never stop. Stephen
1: Bartlett was on my show recently, and he described the pandemic and COVID as a good example of the typical journey an entrepreneur goes on. <laughs> you know, it all comes in uh, all at once. You know, the, the, the drama happens. You don't know how to deal with it. Then you start working through. Then you kind of figure it out. Then it becomes almost a little bit more normalized. And then a couple of years later, you look back and you wonder what the, what the fuss was all about. The, the, the pandemic, what did it teach you?
0: The pandemic was the incubator for smartcos okay. essentially uh, a month into our existence we won already three awards as the best company best rural company best sme etc because we proposed an alternative solution to COVID. you know local food uh, you don't have to worry about borders you don't have to worry about supermarkets going empty etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, if if the pandemic was the incubator then the, the supply chain shortage was the accelerator and what's happening recently in, in Eastern Europe, That that's basically like the, the past phase after, after the accelerator. It, it taught me that people panic very easily. Uh, it taught me that food is even more crucial than I had thought even. And uh, basically, we need local production in every single country, no matter how rich or poor.
1: Mm. Well said. Okay, let's just talk about some of the inspirations you've had over the years. You know, I remember we're in Amsterdam right now, and I remember being in Amsterdam in uh, 1999, and uh, the radio was all Dutch. So I was in my car going to my meetings, and I had, the, I had the BBC World Service was the only thing. I was 29 years old. It's kind of like that's not the thing you know that I listened to. But if you could remember, I had a CD stacker in the boot of my car. And somebody gave me a six CD set for Tony Robbins called Get the Edge. And I put it in there, each CD, and every time I left the office or I left home and got in the car to drive to my meetings, all I listened to was that. For about three or four months until I literally had memorized nearly all of it. It was just on repeat over and over and over. And it changed everything for me. The way I thought, my limiting beliefs, my um, uh, imposter syndrome, all this kind of stuff changed. And my results accelerated beyond compare. What along the way has inspired you? Who, who have you looked to as, you know, uh, a, a figurehead out there and said, you know, I either want to be like him or, or great lessons I can learn from him, etc.
0: I think at this point, everybody says something like Elon Musk. Uh, I didn't. Uh, In my industry, at least. Um, I don't know if you or your your viewers know, but I'm on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. Um, I just spent a month on Bermuda, and uh, Elon Musk was sort of assigned as the mentor uh, for my category and and for me. But he's not really, I respect him, and it's amazing what he's done. My mentor is actually much closer to me in age. He's probably even younger than me. He's Ben Francis. He's the CEO and founder of Gymshark. Gymshark, Uh, uh, I've watched countless videos of him, the journey, the story of Gymshark and, and, and not just in recent years when it became really, really big, but the early hustle, the grind. And I love that. I love the grind set, uh, uh, which is very popular on in Instagram, of course. Yeah. Uh, but I live it. I mean it. Uh, and I don't mean the, 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 the 5 a.m. gym uh, times. Those are also amazing. And cold showers. <laughs> little, dig <laughs> a there. little dig at me, okay. <laughs> I at also least. go to the gym, but I appreciate <laughs> but that. At least I know you're listening to me on social media. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Every day. Um, no, what I mean is that if you want something, you actually have to work for it. There are no shortcuts in life. Sometimes you're lucky, you know, you, you, you put all in on a crypto, it goes to the moon and then you cash out. Sure, it happens. But that shouldn't be a lifestyle. That, that shouldn't be something to, to aspire to. I actually always look back upon a week and I see, okay, I only worked this many hours. Even though I have surpassed my expectations, but I still feel I could have squeezed in an extra something, an extra code, an extra presentation, an extra deal, something. There was, there was more in me. If I'm not that tired, dead, not dead, but dead tired, there is more in me. So I should do more. And I do that also with my, with my colleagues, with my teammates that, oh, I'll do it. I'll do it. You know, uh, it's only now actually this week that uh, Wim and I, my business partner, we started uh, hiring direct help uh, for him. That would be a financial PA and for me, a project manager to take some of the load off of us. But I still love it. There's more in me, you know, I can keep going. That's really interesting to see. So what's the future? Where will this end? We have three goals for the future, very small ones. (laughs) Goal number one is to be present in every single country in the world. Goal number two is to be the controlling dominant power of plant data and uh, AI related to plants, but you know with everything, uh, light, air, etc. And number three is community farms. So after a certain lifetime, when we are powerful enough, then we would like to shift our complete model into building uh, massive, fully automated farms in impoverished uh, countries and regions and feed the planet.
1: So I could probably spend the next few hours talking to you because you're quite a fascinating young man. I don't really like you because I'm 52 and you're young. <laughs> but it's really impressive what you've done. Genuinely really impressive. You should be incredibly proud of yourself. And I'm sure your parents are really proud of you too.
0: They are. Thank you very much. And, and I'm extremely proud of my team.
1: I've got one last question before I finish. You decided to sponsor the podcast. Yes. Why?
0: Well, uh, unlike you, I actually like you. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's the smaller reason the bigger reason is I think that you have an incredible reach a great network and people should hear about this uh, people always either think that oh there are 50 other companies who do this or oh I never heard about this this is science fiction the truth is somewhere in the middle and I think your podcast could deliver that message
1: okay makes sense
0: thanks for coming to join me on the show it's been fun talking to you thank you for having me
1: So how cool was that? Learning about food security with somebody that can explain it in such an easy to understand way was just fantastic. I myself now have learned of some of the problems that exist with food security and the technologies that are being created by this company to solve this critical problem. If you're listening to this on iTunes, then do what I say. Otherwise, I'll give you a right-hander. Give us a five-star rating. I'd really appreciate it. If you're listening to this on any other podcasting app, then do me a favor. Leave me some love. I keep saying it week in, week out. Leave me some engagement. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you don't like. I want to make this podcast as good for you as it possibly can be. But whatever you do, please interact because my job is to serve you and I want to do it to the best of my abilities. I'll see you on the next episode.